0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And today's episode is a request from listener Laura and her son. And I don't think she put her son's name in the email. But in truth, it's only sort of a request from them. Uh, her son asked for the Doolittle raid, which I was game to cover. But really what ended up happening was that as I was researching, I got really excited about Jimmy Doolittle himself uh, because he was pretty amazing. And I certainly had no idea how much he contributed to the field of aviation. So I got really engulfed in that, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, so we are going to talk about the Doolittle Raid, but it will definitely be like a an abridged version. We're not going to go into all of the many details. There have been plenty of books written about it. Uh, so don't worry, because if you really want to dig deeper, there is a lot of good stuff out there, including uh, James Doolittle's autobiography, which I really enjoyed and highly recommend. But first, we have to do a little bit of historical housekeeping for context.
0: So that historical housekeeping is the attack on Pearl Harbor on December seventh, nineteen forty one there was a two hour surprise attack on an American naval base near Honolulu, Hawaii. Japanese fighter pilots just wrought incredible damage on Pearl Harbor, both in terms of human life and lost military assets. By the time this short but extremely brutal attack had ended, more than two thousand American troops were dead and a thousand were wounded. And the Japanese pilots had taken out eight battleships, almost a dozen other naval watercraft, and more than 300 airplanes. This is the action that led the United States to enter World War II, which had already been going on for two years. Uh, And at that point, the United States formally declared war on Japan.
1: So keep that in mind. Uh, And now we're going to talk for a little bit about James Doolittle. So he was really the key figure in the Doolittle Raid uh, and the man it was eventually named after, Jimmy Doolittle. It was also called the Tokyo Raid before it kind of took on the nickname of the Doolittle Raid. Jimmy was born James Harold Doolittle on December 14th in, of 1896 in California, and his parents were Rose Shepard Doolittle and Frank H. Doolittle. Frank chased gold. It's how he and Rose ended up in California, having moved there from New England in search of wealth. And when Jimmy was four, Frank once again moved the Family in search of gold, but this time to Nome, Alaska.
0: After seven years in Alaska, where he got into plenty of scraps with the other local kids, Jimmy was sent back to California by his parents so that he could go to school there. As he moved into his teenage years, he showed some talent in boxing and he won a state boxing championship while he was in high school. While he considered going pro in the boxing ring, he enrolled at, U- at UCLA instead. And
1: Doolittle was a junior in college when the U.S. entered World War I, and he immediately enlisted as an Army Signal Corps flying cadet. He worked as a flying instructor, and he was never shipped overseas. And once the war was over, he went back and finished his undergraduate degree at University of California, Los Angeles. And then he went on to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology as part of a select military group of enrollees to earn his master's degree and his Ph.D. in aeronautical engineering.
0: Jimmy Doolittle was a legend before the raid because his life was one of those that was really just filled with bravado and extraordinary feats. He worked as a stunt pilot and as a wing walker in the 1920s and 30s, and he went on to work as a test pilot and an aviation engineer. Throughout, he was still part of the United States military. He won the
1: Distinguished Flying Cross in 1922 for flying cross country with just one stop from Pablo Beach, Florida to Rockwell, California over the course of 22 and a half hours in a de Havilland aircraft. It was a flight that had been aborted on his first attempt because as he was taking off, the left wheel of his plane hit a soft sand patch and the plane went off course and actually ended up flipped upside down in the water. And Doolittle was mortally embarrassed by this much publicized flop uh, because there had been a lot of people on hand to witness this takeoff. But he did try again later, and this time he did it with no fanfare or press on hand.
0: His second attempt was rough because a storm came up just as he took flight, but he powered through it. He struggled with sleepiness because after the thunderstorm, things were so placid that he started to get sleepy. But the rain itself was what actually saved him. These raindrops that were hitting his propeller were being whipped back at him and ended up running down his back. The cold trickles of all this water were really annoying, but they also kept him from dozing off.
1: And his award came because with this flight, he had basically proven that it was possible to move an Army Air Corps unit anywhere within the U.S. in less than 24 hours. And this was just one of many awards that he would earn throughout his career in flight.
0: In early 1925, which was the same year that he earned his doctorate, he set a world record for a seaplane of 232 miles an hour in the Schneider Seaplane Race in Baltimore, Maryland. He had fitted an existing racing plane that had been developed cooperatively with the army and the navy with pontoons to enter the seaplane race. The day after the race, he took the craft out again and beat his own world record that he had just set, putting it, pushing it up to 245 miles an hour. This turned out to cause some sour grapes. That race had historically been dominated by navy pilots. So they weren't really thrilled to lose the title to an army guy who had just decided on a whim that he wanted to fly (laughs) seaplanes.
1: Yeah, he was, you know, kind of one of those people that was extraordinary and that when he set his mind to do something, he was usually shockingly good at it. Uh, later in 1925, he got permission for a six month long leave from his military career. And this was to work as an aircraft demonstrator in South America, showing off the quality and maneuverability of Curtis P-1 Hawk fighters. He headed first to Santiago, Chile in 1926. So he got the permission in 25, but he actually left in 26. Uh, and there he got in a dogfight competition, like a competition flight, not an actual dogfight, against German ace Ernst von Schoenbeck of the Richthofen Flying Circus.
0: That name rings a bell. It was not actually a circus. It was a World War I German fighter unit, nicknamed for using very colorful airplanes. So Doolittle was going up against really stiff competition, and he managed to win, which might be impressive enough on its own, but there's actually more to the story.
1: Yeah, at the time of this competition, Doolittle was flying with two broken ankles. Uh He had fallen from a window during a party attempting to show off that he could do similar swashbuckling stunts to those of screen star Douglas Fairbanks. And if you're wondering, yes, alcohol was involved in this poor decision making. Uh, after the fall, Doolittle had attached his boots to the rudders of his plane so that he could continue to fly and do the job that he had traveled to South America for. And that was the state he was in when he was challenged by this German pilot.
0: I kind of want to look into whether he and Luis Alvarez knew each other. (laughs) (laughs) Because it seems like from our episode on him, which is long ago in the archive at this point, uh, they probably would have gotten along.
1: I would think so, yes. It sounds like lots of people got along with Jimmy Doolittle. He sounds like a fabulous and fascinating gent to know.
0: So uh, after he went back to the United States, the doctors at Walter Reed grounded him And really, really grounded him. He wasn't allowed to do much of anything for six months because flying in casts using the workaround setup that he had figured out had really done serious damage to his legs. But being the man that he was, he did not just sit around doing nothing during that time.
1: And we're going to talk about what he worked on while he was recuperating. But first, let's pause and take a quick break to talk about one of our much-loved sponsors.
0: And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks.
2: I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step.
3: and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s. She looked like a million bucks. With zero qualifications.
0: She had a Harvard plaque.
2: So,
1: instead of sitting idle while on forced rest, Doolittle used his convalescence to return to the subject uh, that he had written his dissertation on, which was pilots blacking out during extreme maneuvers and He started to think specifically about stunt flying and blackouts so prior to this time, and I really feel compelled to mention that at this point, flying planes had only been happening for a little more than two decades. Uh, this was the mid twenties and the Wright brothers and their Kill Devil Hills adventures. We're in the early 1900s. So it's a really tight time frame. So he was thinking about stunt flying and the fact that only inside loops had been performed in flight up to this point, And an outside loop was considered too dangerous. So if you don't know what those are, An inside loop, if you were to draw a picture on a piece of paper of a plane doing a loop, like a loop-de-loop, an inside loop, the pilot would always be inside the circle. Like That's where the cockpit is always facing up into the circle. Whereas an outside loop, the pilot would be on the outside of the plane, or on the outside of the circle, facing outward.
0: He was really fascinated by the idea of an outside loop, and he took advantage of this forced downtime at Walter Reed, to speak with other pilots who were being treated there and get their thoughts on outside loops. He pondered the idea from an engineering standpoint, trying to figure out just what might happen to the human body during that kind of a stunt. So, of course, the minute he was cleared to fly again, he started testing out his ideas. He ran various partial loop tests before becoming the first known pilot to successfully complete an outside loop in 1927.
1: Never one to rest on his laurels, clearly. He continued to do some innovative and adventurous things. And two years later, on September 29th of 1929, Jimmy Doolittle made the first blind flight using instruments only in Nassau County in New York. Prior to that, pilots were depending on visuals a great deal on what they could actually see out the cockpit window. But he had developed a beacon system to give pilots a sense of location when no visuals were possible. And with that, he basically kicked off the development of the modern cockpit. He also received the Daniel Guggenheim Medal for Advancing Aeronautics and the Harmon Trophy for Outstanding Aviation as well for having done this amazing thing.
0: The following year, which was 1930, Jenny, Jimmy Doolittle retired from active duty with the Army Air Corps. He spent the next decade taking home trophies for win, winning speed races and working at Shell Oil while the company developed high octane fuel that would eventually become the standard for military aircraft.
1: After 10 years away from the military, James Doolittle was recalled for active duty in 1940 after Hitler invaded Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Poland, Belgium and France. He was 43 at the time, and he was tasked with fulfilling the Army Air Corps' need to produce 50,000 planes each year rather than the 2,000 that they had been producing. Because even though the U.S. at this point had not joined the war, they wanted to be ready.
0: Working with Detroit car manufacturers, despite neither the auto industry nor the Army being particularly keen on that kind of partnership, Doolittle was able to succeed in this mandate. By the end of 1941, Ford was producing the consolidated B-24 bomber.
1: But even though this was really a huge feather in his cap and he had performed above and beyond what had been expected or hoped for, Doolittle was pretty miserable. (laughs) He just didn't like this. He didn't like a desk job and he wanted to return to really active duty. And he made requests for a transfer to go to a combat unit through all of the appropriate channels, but he basically got turned down every time and got constant resistance. But then finally in January of 1942, He received a call and was tasked with a secret mission, and his job was to plan and execute an air raid against Japan.
0: The attack on Pearl Harbor that we talked about at the top of the show and the events that came after it set the United States on edge. In the Pacific, U.S. troops did not fare well against the Japanese, and things weren't really going well in Europe either. Something had to be done to neutralize Japan's forces if the United States was going to make any headway in the Pacific. After several months of planning, Doolittle and his men were ready.
1: On April 18th of 1942, 16 B-25 Mitchell bombers with a total of 80 volunteer crewmen launched from the aircraft carrier Hornet. Their flight began 620 miles away from Japan, and the original plan had called for a takeoff from the Hornet at approximately 400 miles from Japan's coast. But because a fishing boat spotted the carrier, things had to be revised at the last minute because their uh, position had been called in.
0: The B-25s had been fitted with extra fuel tanks, which meant that they lost armament in the process. Because the airplanes weren't originally intended to take off from an aircraft carrier, there also had to be really significant changes in the takeoff procedure. Pilots were trained to take off not at the usual 90 miles an hour, but at 60 miles per hour. You know a lot about how planes take off. Speed is essential. This is tricky. They also had a lot less runway than would normally be available. Aboard each B-25 were five men, the pilot, the co-pilot, a bombardier, a navigator, and a gunner. And
1: as a personal side note, uh, the practice
0: runs for these takeoffs were
1: performed at an auxiliary field to Eglin Field in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, which is where my dad was stationed for a really long time. Uh, so I know that area well. Uh, the teams flew low on their approach. They were about 200 feet over the water. And as they reached the Japanese coastline, they dropped very low, some of them coming in just a few dozen feet above the ground. And they made their way to their intended targets, which were military and industrial Sites in Tokyo, Yokohama, Kobe, Nagoya, and Osaka. And as they rose into the air to about 1,200 feet over their targets, they dropped their bombs. And then they headed to airfields on the Chinese mainland to
0: land. The wrap up of this mission, which was basically successful, didn't go as planned. We're going to talk about exactly what happened right after we pause for another brief word from one of our sponsors. You and I have both made our own websites using Squarespace. That is correct. And we both found it extremely easy and painless. That is also correct. (laughs) Uh, And for my part, it was possibly the most easy and painless thing so far about planning my wedding. It was super easy, super intuitive. I basically did all of it while sitting with my laptop uh, on my bed in my pajamas. Got something in a couple hours that looked exactly like I wanted with all the things that I wanted to have on it, makes it extremely easy for the parts that I want to be just for invited guests, to be password protected for our guests, and the parts that I'm comfortable being public out there for the whole world to see. All of that extremely easy with Squarespace. You don't have to have coding knowledge. You don't have to know a lot about the elements of design. Squarespace has easy-to-use, beautiful templates that give you professional results, regardless of what your experience level is. It is awesome. So with Squarespace, you can make a website that looks professionally designed, regardless of what your skill level is. All the tools are really intuitive and easy to use. And you get a free domain if you sign up for a year, which I did. Uh, start your free trial today at Squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace. You should.
1: So going back to the Doolittle raid, while this raid had the intended effect of scaring Japan and undermining their confidence, it really took its toll on Doolittle's team. The planes did not make it to the emergency airfields that they had been planned to land at because of their very early takeoff. They were all running out of fuel and to make matters worse, a nasty bit of weather was moving in. Doolittle described in his autobiography actually seeing sharks in the water below as they were flying and thinking that that would be an absolutely terrible place to bail out. And eventually they got a little bit of tailwind and they were able to get a little bit closer to their intended mark.
0: Every one of the B-25s used in the raid was lost. The soldiers in them had to bail out over China. Three crews successfully crashed, landed in China and made their way to safety. But there were also a number of casualties
1: uh before we go on, I want to have a brief side note on terminology so my understanding about the word soldier is that it is usually used for army whereas air Force would normally be called airmen and I, you could make the argument that these guys should be considered airmen because they were in the uh Army air Corps before the air Force was founded but just for the sake of simplicity, we're sticking with soldiers here so if you are an airman, please don't be offended <laughs> i'm I'm not trying to you know do any dicey uh misnomering but you know, we're in that that weird phase where it's the Air Force doesn't exist yet. So that's the scoop. Uh, one soldier died during the bailout. And while swimming across a lake to evade Japanese occupation forces, two men drowned. Eight men were captured, and of those, three of them were executed. Another of the remaining five died of starvation while in custody of the Japanese.
0: One plane landed in the Soviet Union where their bomber was taken and the crew was interned. The Soviets eventually moved them to another location near the Iranian border and managed to bribe someone to smuggle them across the border to the British consulate. According to Soviet documents that were later declassified, this entire smuggling operation was actually the work of Soviet authorities. They wanted to move the United States soldiers out of the Soviet Union, but they couldn't violate the neutrality pact they had with Japan in order to do it. In fact, the United States military had originally tried to work out a deal with the Soviet Union to land there after the raid rather than in China. But again, because of the relationship they had with Japan, the request to do that had been denied.
1: And as for Doolittle's immediate crew on his plane, after parachuting into China, they were assisted by American uh, by an American missionary and uh, both Chinese military people and civilians, and they were able to get home. There's actually some very wacky stories in Doolittle's book about him convincing some of the Chinese people he was encountering that, yes, he was an American soldier uh, and he was who he said he was. But... Uh, Doolittle thought when he got home, he was actually going to face a court martial for losing all the aircraft. He would later write, quote, I sat down beside a wing and I looked at the thousands of pieces of shattered metal that had once been a beautiful airplane. I felt lower than a frog's posterior. This was my first combat mission. I had planned it from the beginning and led it. I was sure it was my last. As far as I was concerned, it was a failure. And I felt there could be no future for me in uniform.
0: He was happy, though, about his parachute landing. He had some real concerns about his ankles being injured again, because, I mean, even though a parachute slows your fall down, you still land pretty hard, and his ankles had previously been broken. Uh, it, fortunately, slash, I was going to say but unfortunately, but it's all fortunate, he wound up landing in manure, which is not ideal, but is better than re-breaking his ankles.
1: Yeah, he's, uh, he was very thankful to be smelly for a little while rather than have to be in casts again. So the Doolittle raid had two immediate effects. First, it was a huge morale boost for U.S. troops, civilians at home, and the Allies. And second, as we mentioned earlier, it really sent a shockwave through the Japanese military. The thought in Japan up to this point had been that the U.S. lacked real firepower in the Pacific, since so many vessels and planes had been destroyed at Pearl Harbor, and so many other assets were already deployed in Europe.
0: As Doolittle wrote in his autobiography, quote, "...the bombs could only do a fraction of the damage the Japanese had inflicted on us at Pearl Harbor. But the primary purpose of the raid against the main island of Japan was psychological."
1: And immediately, the Japanese forces scrambled to fortify their defenses in the Pacific. Their carrier fleet in the Indian Ocean was called home to protect the islands of Japan. Aircraft that had been spread throughout the South Pacific by Japan were all recalled to patrols at home to defend against another possible attack from U.S. bombers.
0: This shift of Japan's military assets back to the Japanese islands, along with United States victories at the Battle of the Coral Sea in May 1942 and the Battle of Midway in June of that year, enabled the United States to launch a a campaign against Japan at Guadalcanal in August of 1942. This would have been impossible before the Japanese defensive stand in the Pacific had been crippled.
1: And immediately after the raid, of course, Doolittle was not court-martialed, as he expected, and he was instead promoted. He had been a lieutenant colonel when he led the raid, but the very next day he was made a brigadier general, skipping over the rank of full colonel completely.
0: Doolittle was also awarded the Medal of Honor for his efforts, an honor he was given a month after the raid. The citation stated the reason for his award simply and clearly and put into perspective just how dangerous the Doolittle raid had been.
1: It read, quote, With the apparent certainty of being forced to land in enemy territory or to perish at sea, Colonel Doolittle personally led a squadron of army bombers manned by volunteer crews in a highly destructive raid on the Japanese mainland.
0: Doolittle would go on to command the Strategic Air Forces, the 12th Air Force in Britain and the 15th Air Force in North Africa and Italy. He later commanded the 8th Air Force, which was instrumental in forcing Nazi surrender at the end of World War II.
1: And after the war, James Doolittle returned to work as Shell Oil. He was eventually named the president of the Institute of Aeronautical Science, and he served on the president's scientific advisory committee.
0: In 1983, Doolittle was made the 25th recipient of the United States Military Academy's Sylvanus Thayer Award given for a distinguished military service.
1: Doolittle died on September 27th of 1993 at Pebble Beach, California at the age of 96. He had had a stroke earlier in September and he spent his last several weeks in his son's home before he passed. And I'm so awed by his life. And what I really love, one of the things that came up when I was researching this uh, was that at one point somebody had referred to him as the Da Vinci of flight. And he said, I think they mean more like I'm the Rube Goldberg. That's not the direct <laughs> quote, but it was kind of like that. Like he was just like, no, I'm just I'm I'm just busy trying stuff, That's awesome. <laughs> which I sort of loved. It was so uh sort of humble and wonderful and witty at the same time. Uh, so that is the story of James Doolittle and the Doolittle raid. Uh, you also have listener mail? I do. This one, uh, made me laugh so hard that Tracy knew immediately that it was going to be read on the air. Oh, Uh, yeah. Yeah. And
0: then (laughs) it's such a great email that it came in on a weekend and I happened to read it on the weekend and we had brunch and I was telling the people at brunch.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's so great. So this is from our listener, Ben. He says, Dear Holly and Tracy. In the Courier mine disaster episode, Holly asked why they thought it was the coal dust and not the methane from the horses that caused the explosion. Uh Yeah, it wasn't clear. I mean, there was obviously coal dust that was a problem, but I didn't understand why they had always been rated so clean in terms of uh fire damp, like the mine gases, when they had horses that were underground making methane. And Ben says, I was intrigued by this question, so I decided to finally put my engineering degree to good use, calculating horse farts. The Courier mine disaster extended along 110 kilometers of tunnels and, assuming the tunnels are two meters wide and tall, that gives us a volume of 440,000 cubic meters. A mixture of air and methane is only flammable if it is at least 5% methane, so the horses needed to make 22,000 cubic meters of methane. A single horse produces roughly 32 cubic meters of methane per year. So you would need around 690 horses farting for an entire year to make the mine flammable. At this point, you might think this is possible. 690 horses might be reasonable for a large mine. However, the methane could only build up to dangerous levels if there was no ventilation. If the ventilation in the mine was removed, the oxygen in the mine could only support those horses for three months at most, and that's with no people also breathing the oxygen. So an airtight mine would be a really bad idea. But as you mentioned, the mine was actually ventilated, sending all those horse farts out into the French countryside. (laughs) as cool as horse farts are the coal dust was the more likely culprit yours in flatulence Ben he he gives a PS that he's sorry for using metric Uh, don't be sorry this is the most brilliant piece of writing maybe ever I want to give some sort of award to Ben for this I I could not be more delighted by this email so now we know about the math of horse farts thank you so much Ben that was just spectacular (laughs) If you would like to write to us with your mathematics of flatulence or anything else, you can do so at History Podcast at com. You can connect with us at Facebook.com slash history, on Twitter at MissedInHistory, at Pinterest.com slash history, at MissedInHistory.tumblr.com, and on Instagram at history. If you would like to learn a little bit more about what we talked about today, you can go to our parents' t- parent site, House Works. If you do a search for the Doolittle Raid, uh, the one of the things that comes up is the North American B-25 Mitchell Bomber. So you'll get a little more information on the planes that they were actually taking out into this raid. Uh, if you would like to visit us, you can do that at MissedInHistory.com where you can look at show notes for all of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as an archive of every episode of the podcast there has ever been. So we encourage you to come and visit us at housedevworks.com and MissedInHistory.com.
3: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. It's
1: been almost three thousand years, and Greek mythology has proved that it is not going anywhere. But it can be difficult to find entertaining and engaging retellings of these myths that aren't fictionalized. Lucky for you, I'm here. Let's talk about myths, baby. Is the Greek mythology and ancient history podcast of your dreams? I dive into the convoluted and confusing ancient sources so you don't have to. Listen to Let's Talk About Myths, Baby, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.